Dietz and Watson's been making meats and cheeses the right way since forever. What's that mean? It means never cutting corners, ever. It means cooking, not processing. It means our Virginia brand ham that's cooked to perfection, then twice baked to layer the flavors. It takes more time, but you can taste the difference. We come to work every day to do it the right way, even if it's the hard way. Because if it's not right for us, it's not right for you. Dietz and Watson, it's a family thing since 1939. This is the story of the one. As head of maintenance at a concert hall, he knows the show must always go on. That's why he works behind the scenes, ensuring every light is working, the HVAC is humming, and his facility shines. With Granger's supplies and solutions for every challenge he faces, plus 24-7 customer support, his venue never misses a beat. Call quickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger, for the ones who get it done. to a good football show i'm your host pat corain with me today is ben gretch and jack miller we are going to be talking about the running back dead zone uh we are also going to be covering this devastating cam Akers injury and the follow-up from that but first guys how are you doing doing well doing well thanks for having us i'm good yeah thanks for having me on yeah uh you'll know ben from stealing signals the the must subscribe fantasy newsletter and from Stealing Bananas, the podcast that I just binged like seven hours worth of my way back from vacation. Jack has been crushing the content for NBC and a number of other sites. So excited to talk to you guys. Off the top, we we have this Cam Akers, Achilles tear done for the season. This is obviously going to jump Daryl Henderson's ADP way up. Where do you think he will fall, Ben? Like, where do you think he'll end up falling in drafts? Kind of like what groups of you know of running backs do you think he'll kind of be near now? Yeah, my initial reaction was that he should probably be like a second round pick. I'm seeing on Twitter a lot of people saying that he should be more like a third or maybe fourth round pick. And and then when I was digging in ADP, I mean, there's a lot of obviously interesting running backs there are there are always are. You know, I, I look at someone like Clyde Edwards Adlair, who's crept up into the back end of the second round. I really like uh, CEH's upside. I think uh, Henderson kind of fits sort of similar to that. About There's about a half around gap after that. And you get to Swift and J.K. Dobbins. I think you could make the case at Swift and Dobbins, especially Swift, who I think might be a decent enough value. Maybe should go ahead of Henderson still. I have a really hard time after that with Carson and, and David Montgomery. Those guys I don't think should be ahead of Henderson. So that's sort of the range that I'm looking at. And I could see him going higher than that. He doesn't have much competition. Even if they bring a veteran in, his competition will be minimal by comparison to some of these guys like Swift, for example. He was very efficient last year, very good prospect. There's a lot of reasons to be really excited about what he could do. You know, I I mean, I I think you can make a case for him in in the middle of the second round. Justin and so good. Thousands of summer deals at your Nordstrom Rack Store. Save up to 60% on new arrivals from Vince, Rag & Bone, Adidas, Joe's, Mark Jacobs, and more. Great brands, great prices every day at Nordstrom Rack. But hurry for first dibs. Get your summer favorites up to 60% off at Nordstrom Rack today. Great brands, great prices. That's why you rack. The longest field goal ever attempted is 76 yards. The longest field goal ever missed? Also 76 yards. Why bring this up? Because knowing your limits matters, both when you're kicking a field goal and when you gamble. Betting more than you're comfortable with is like trying a 70-yard field goal. It probably won't go well. So set a limit when you gamble and stick to it. Want more helpful tips like this? Go to KeepItFunOhio.com for games, quizzes, and lots of ways to keep your gambling from getting out of hand. Have you ever spotted McDonald's hot, crispy fries right as they're being scooped into the carton? And time just stands still. Jack, where are you at on that? Yeah, so I think I'm going to be a little lower on him than that. I would have Swift and Dobbins ahead of him. I I think maybe we're overestimating how much Henderson has actually shown at the NFL level. Obviously, there was the he was awesome at Memphis, but he hasn't done a whole bunch in the NFL, and they're going to bring in another running back. I mean, they're not going to go in with Xavier Jones. I think the main thing for me 
which I guess we're, we're going to get into today, is that maybe positionally you could have him after Swift and Dobbins, but I would have a difficult time picking Henderson over some of the wide receivers you could get around that range. Yeah, especially because like in certain formats, like the main event has already kicked off. And so you're now competing, you know, against teams in the, the big playoffs, the championship playoffs that will have cheap Henderson, 11th around Henderson or, you know, 9, 10, 11th around Henderson. You're also dealing with that in best ball mania, any kind of, you know, big tournament that's been going for a while now. You have the added consideration of, you know, if you're taking Henderson in the, the third round, you're competing against these teams that are going to have monster teams compared to what you're doing with your your third round pick. So that makes it tough. I think the thing I struggle with with Henderson is that, like, I would probably rather gamble on a guy like Swift over someone like Najee Harris personally, just because I'm swinging for the fences. And we can kind of talk about a little bit why that's my mindset later on. But so I, I struggle with this whole range because like CEH, I think makes sense as a bet. I'd probably want, I want him over Henderson, but that whole group doesn't make a ton of sense to me in the way they're ordered. Right. Somewhere, I, somewhere in there. I agree with that. And CEH is interesting. And I was kind of saying that about Swift. It's hard to kind of place him because I guess I'll push back a little on, on Henderson. I mean, he was, Pretty efficient last year, pretty good in, when he got opportunity to play a lot. Obviously, Malcolm Brown was there. He wasn't running a ton of routes, but he's been efficient as a receiver as well. I mean, his, his catch rates haven't been good, but he's produced decent like yards per target. So that's like that. The, the interesting thing with him, I think, is that under McVeigh, we've seen the Rams be willing to lean pretty heavily toward the running backs in the red zone, especially. Like We've seen some really gaudy touchdown numbers for Todd Gurley acres at times when he was sort of the, the workhorse back like I lean a lot on, on offense when I think about running back potential I think Henderson's good enough there's basically no competition like we said and even if they bring in someone like that guy's probably not as good at this stage as like Jamal Williams who's who's competing with Swift right and I don't think Jamal Williams is particularly good but I think even after they bring someone in Henderson's competition is probably lighter than some of these guys and the offense gives him a scenario like some legitimate upside scenarios statistically like he, he can if he's a workhorse runner, he could have double-digit touchdowns pretty easily and, and potentially as many as, like, 15. Yeah, I think that um, in terms of, like, the competition, probably the best running back on sign right now is Duke Johnson, but he is a very specific type of running back. Like, I'm just not concerned if they sign. I mean, they could end up signing Todd Gurley as kind of a veteran presence. Uh, Le'Veon Bell, like, there's not a lot that would really make you too concerned. Is there anyone I'm missing, Jack? Schefter said they're not going to sign anyone for now. So I think what they're probably going to do is either, you know, maybe they, they trade for someone or more likely they wait until after cuts, preseason cuts, and then they sign, you know, whoever, like someone like Melvin Gordon, who has been rumored to be on the roster bubble in Denver. Yeah, and who Adam Levitan is is openly calling for to be traded so that yeah. his, his love Mike Boone can finally, <laughs> finally <laughs> shine but yeah, that would be kind of interesting if Melvin Gordon ended up there. That that would actually make some sense. Any other uh, final thoughts on the Henderson? One last thing. So I agree the efficiency for Henderson has been good. It's just that he has never sustained that kind of workhorse volume over the course of an in, entire season. So in that regard, it's kind of similar to someone like, obviously he's way better than Chase Edmonds, but like similar to Chase Edmonds in that it takes some projection to give him that full workload, but he has done well with the, the smaller workload when given the opportunity. So he's kind of like Edmonds on steroids. Would you agree with that? Assuming they bring someone in, which I'm, I think we all are confident they will. I think that's fair. Yeah. I mean, like you mean like at Memphis, even he, he wasn't like a full-time guy, like he didn't get like mm -hmm. 20 carries a game. Yeah. No, that, that's a good point. Uh, I, I think that's fair. There's also guys that go high. Like that could be said about Austin Eckler, but obviously yeah. Eckler goes high because of, massive receiving projections. Um, and, and that's sort of the concern with Henderson. Yeah, I agree with you too, Pat. If they brought in Duke Johnson, it would be a little bit of a different scenario. You don't see the, the pass, the three down upside in that scenario. So yeah, maybe I'm overstating it a little, but he is a bet on, like I really liked him as a prospect. It's sort of where, where I'm falling back on and, and was you know pleasantly surprised by last year after a really bad rookie year. And so he's a bet on talent that I'm willing to make alongside some of those other kind of bet on talent types like CEH and Swift and, in that range. Yeah, and, and to some extent, he's kind of different from someone like, I don't know, like Mike Davis, because Mike Davis's fragility isn't isn't so much baked into his ADP. Like if they sign someone um, like Melvin or Duke or whoever, like Mike Davis just tanks 
Whereas if, if they don't, like Henderson is going to probably be like a third, I'd say probably like a fourth round pick. Whereas if they don't sign anyone, he's going to be, he'd be like a first round pick. So to some extent that is, it's going to be like already all the way baked in. Yeah. Yeah. I agree with that. Henderson's going to be a part of this offense in a way that like someone like Mike Davis, I mean, Mike Davis has been a career backup where Henderson has been someone we were excited about drafting. Yeah. But this kind of leads us into the larger discussion that I wanted to have about the running back dead zone because, you know, Henderson previously more in the ninth, 10th, 11th type of range. Now he comes up in a range, regardless of where he ultimately settles, he is now firmly in a range of strong wide receivers. And so we are dealing with much more significant opportunity cost. Ben, you wrote about this back in 2019, this idea of the running back dead zone. It's kind of, it's really taken off since then. It's become like a key part of the way we talk about fantasy football drafts. Just like give us the background on the running back dead zone, the, the work you did. Yeah, it's funny. When we talk about Henderson and you talk about the receivers, both of you guys have brought that up now. I, I'm probably not likely to take him over those receivers either. I'm definitely in agreement there. The the dead zone research I did in 2019, there's a lot of different ways to look at it. And we'll talk about Jack's research on it too, which I think is really interesting. I think if I'm not mistaken, Jack yours is focused on on bust rates to an extent. I know for me, I was focused very much on ceiling outcomes, elite outcomes, where those come from, because I don't really care about the sort of, you know, average outcomes for running backs, because uh, there's been a lot of research that's been shown that anything in the middle, you know, a pretty decent running back outcome from like a, you know, third round running back pick, it's still likely to not be very good for your team because the wide receivers in those ranges are scoring more points. We're really drafting running backs for upside, which Pat, we're going to talk about your piece uh, about the legendary upside, just a, a fantastic distillation of that point. And so that's what I was looking at. I had a couple different cutoffs and the way that we build these analyses is going to change the results. But I used full season points as the main big cutoff. And I used, I was just pulling it back up. I used 280 points, which is kind of probably a little low. It's lower than I, than some of the stuff you were looking at, Pat, in the sense that like, I don't know that we'd really call that truly elite, but it's it's very, very good. And then I used a 20 point per game cutoff for players who played fewer than, you know, 16 games who might not have been hit on that first cutoff, but played at least uh, half the season. So there were some, some really good players, some Melvin Gordon seasons where he got hurt late, but you could, you could make the case that had he not gotten hurt, he was pretty clearly a, a, a really strong pick where, where he was taken in a fancy draft. So I wanted those guys to be pulled in. And then I used one last really high cutoff for late season fantasy playoff blowups like the Derrick Henry from 2018 and Damian Williams were two examples that I brought up in, in the original article. And so that gave me this group of guys that I was like, okay, these are like sort of elite seasons, maybe a little broad. It was 56 running backs over 10 seasons, right? So 5.6 a season, pretty small amount. And Pat, you've, you talked in, in your piece, it might even be smaller than that, but that's, that's what we're looking at with really elite seasons. That there's not a ton of running backs that are, you know, hitting these really high win rates. This is what we're chasing, really. And of that group, almost 60% were drafted in the first two rounds. And there was another five of those 59 that were drafted in the third round, so a little bit below 10% there. And then what was really interesting was from round four through round nine, there was only seven backs that had an ADP in that group over that 10-year period I looked at, which, again, this is pre-2019. There's been a couple more in the last two years. And then there were nine backs that came from round 10 to round 16. So you actually had, and the sample size were roughly the same, roughly the same amount of running backs went in both, basically the same amount of rounds. So essentially you had the same type and, and actually arguably a little bit more type of ceiling outcomes coming after the double digit round break than from round four through the end of the single digit rounds, which, you know, in round four to round nine, you might get more of those average running back results, but that's a pretty big point. And then I know Jack has shown also that you're, you're still having massive bust rates. We, we know running backs bust everywhere in the draft. So that idea that you're not improving your ceiling outcomes by taking a running back anywhere from, you know, this round four, round nine range. Again, I know Jack's range is a little bit different in his, his look. You're not improving your ceiling outcomes compared to taking a, a running back in round 10 plus is uh, I, I think sort of the key point, kind of the sticker point is like you're, the, the, at that point, there's almost no argument to take a running back in those rounds. What's interesting to me about what's happened since you wrote that article and since there's been a lot more about this is that th there has been a real reaction 
to this among drafters. ADP has shifted, but like maybe not like correctly. <laughs> uh, like Jack, you wrote about this. Like we're seeing running backs not only fall in the dead zone, but past the dead zone. And then we're also seeing running backs get drafted higher in rounds one and two. So it's like people are avoiding rounds three and six as if there's something magical about those rounds. There isn't. <laughs> it's the, the profile of running backs that we're, and, and relative to the cost is what we're trying to avoid. Yeah, so I, Greg said it was four through nine. I, when I did it originally, I just did three through six, but just generally that range. And so what I did when I first looked at it is I kind of looked at it through average points instead of like just pure ceiling outcomes. And basically I found that running backs in rounds three through six average like the same amount of points as running backs in rounds seven through 10. So then the takeaway there obviously would be just skip on the running backs in three through six and draft them in seven through 10. But what we're seeing now is that starting at like, it, it started to change a little bit. I think now guys like Najee and Clyde are, are starting to fall a little bit, but like a week or so ago, it was literally as soon as you got into like the 25th overall ADP, guys were just falling and it would not stop and through the end of the draft. So I think what should happen is we would see, you know, the truly elite running backs go where they're currently going. And then after that, it would just be pretty wide receiver heavy. And then starting at a certain point, it would just skew completely back running backs because those running backs around seven through 10 have been really, really good over the last six years. So I think that's how it should work where it should be elite running backs, extremely wide, wide receiver heavy zone, and then go back to running backs at some point. But instead we're just seeing all running backs falling at every single part of the draft, which I think is interesting. And it, it makes for an interesting discussion as to how to play because now you could argue that you're getting those dead zone running backs at a fair value, but you're also getting those round seven through 10 running backs at an even better value than they were before. And they were already good before. And now they're going even lower. Yeah. I think that part of it, to me, the ADP is getting a little bit more efficient and it allows you then to draft a little bit more efficiently, which to my mind means you can take more wide receivers early, basically throughout the entire early part of the draft. If you know those round seven through 10 running backs are also falling, you can sit back and let the value fall to you later. And then you're also benefiting from this idea that not all running backs are falling. The running backs in rounds one and two are going really as high as they, as they ever have, you know, at least in the last five or six years. So if you don't take running backs there, or maybe you take one, you're gaining a wide receiver advantage on your opponents, but then you, you have that falling running back value that's going to you know help you fill those running back positions later. I'm basically, in a very roundabout way, describing the concept of zero running back. And Ben, you, you mentioned on Stealing Bananas that like the running back dead zone came out of this zero running back research that Sean Siegel's done. I find this pretty interesting that you basically like took one piece of zero running back and sort of sliced it off and like served it up to everyone in a way that was much more, I think, digestible for the community. And they, they very much enjoyed it. We like the running back dead zone is something people can wrap their head. No one's mad about it. No one's arguing about what to call it. It's gone over. Well, I think because it's probably the most digestible lesson from zero running back, but you should still think of it within the larger context of all the other lessons of zero. Running back. Yeah. I, what's, what's really interesting about that. And it, I think it was a very natural slice to to get to because from i mean you're sort of referring to kind of in a roundabout way as well the the fact that zero rb was written in 2013 and as a community we had a lot of arguments about zero rb to, all the way to this day have right? there been arguments and for several years it was you know basically that zero rb is is idiotic what we saw in that in that stretch though was a, a change in trends at the NFL level of what what are what we're seeing, in in specific the rise of this sort of Uber back right. It started with David Johnson and Le'Veon Bell. It went to Christian McCaffrey, Alvin Kamara. Uh, you know, several backs that have, have just been almost like the modern day Marshall Falks that have been so good in the passing game and the run game in a way that we didn't necessarily see in the OOS. There like there was not as much passing to the running backs. They're just these really heavy running workloads. 
And so things have changed, certainly. That that That's pretty undeniable but that those backs that almost all of which are going in the first round, right, in drafts are worth drafting. And, and when they have their ceiling seasons, Todd Gurley is the other one. Todd Gurley had a ceiling season. You had to have him to win a lot of leagues and especially major tournaments. You had to have McCaffrey in 2019. You had to have several of these guys. Kamara uh, last year is a good example. And so that creates like this focus on, well, yeah, it really isn't about as much about the very first round because those players are good. Like that wasn't sort of the whole point of zero B. The point is that running backs are basically worse picks than receivers everywhere in the draft, but it's close early on. It's the real point is that dead zone, right? And it's that area where we start to get outside the top 10 or 15 backs that we feel really good. Those are like the only ones that we actually can project legitimate volume for and guaranteed touches maybe is a, is a, a thing that we should actually use a term that we should actually use. Cause I think, Broadly, that term for running backs is massively overused. Like nothing is really guaranteed at this position, except for guys like Christian McCaffrey, Derrick Henry, whoever. Those guys are going to get their work, but it gets way worse in that dead zone. And so, yeah, it really builds completely off the zero RB stuff. Part of the reason that Jack and I both kind of independently got into this research by by the point we did in the 2019 offseason was that rise of the Uber back. And it's like this really is the the main point. And then it also says, look, you can do zero RB. You don't have to take those running backs in the first round. But regardless of whether you take a running back early or you go wide receiver and, and you're not going zero RB early, you should then at about round three, round four, be building outside of the running back position, right? Like that's the point in the draft where all the data shows. And, and like some of the different rounds aren't ex- exact for me and Jack. Some of that is going to be just due to like ADP shifts. Depends on when we're pulling ADP. Some guys ADP rises over the offseason. Like Daryl Henderson, what, do, what are we going to put him on? put his ADP at the end of this year. Are we going to talk about him as a third round, fourth round pick or an average ADP would put him somewhere in like the eighth round, which he never really was going. So yeah, like some little things like that. But I think I just want to point that out for anyone who may be confused. I think mine and Jack's work really strongly reinforces itself or each other. And and it's done slightly differently and comes to the same conclusion. And I think that's really important as well. Yeah. And as it relates to the rise of the Uber back, when we did this stuff in 2019, we only, we didn't really have as much like data to reinforce the ADP shifting, but I had an article for NBC a week or two ago. And, and it basically showed that starting in 2018, there was like a big shift in when running backs were drafted and basically all running backs started going earlier. I split it up by positional ADP. So RB one through six, seven through 12, 13 through 18, et cetera. And I went through the top 30 and every single group from 2018 to 2021. So through this off season, as it stands right now, those top 30 running backs across all levels, RB1, RB2, RB3, are going much higher than they were going in 2015 through 17. And the only group that has a higher average win rate is the RB1 through 6. And so those Uber backs, those McCaffreys, those Gurleys, those, those David Johnsons, Dalvin, whoever, they are going earlier than they used to, but they have just been such a smash over the last few years that all the other running backs have done worse because it's correlated, right? Like if you get McCaffrey, it means you're not getting Joe Mixon or someone. So those running, but those running backs are also going higher. Like Mixon is going higher this year than he would in 2017 or in 2016. And so all running backs are being pushed up and actually all running backs are scoring more. And some of that's just ADP is getting more efficient. Um, Like if you look at 2015 ADP, it's, it's really bad seeing some of the names that were being drafted in the second or third round. And so as we get more efficient, all the running backs are getting pushed up in ADP. All the running backs are scoring more points at the high end, but only those true elites, those top six running backs, um, you know, give or take, maybe it's top four this year, maybe it's top eight another year, are actually dragging their fantasy owners to uh, championships at a higher level. That's a point I really wanted to dig into with you, Jack. So you, when you are kind of doing because you're for you the dead zone sort of starts at like rb7 right more or less yeah so that yeah that's what i wrote in the in the article i think i didn't dig into that point like too hard i kind of just ballparked rb7 i think realistically it's probably more like rb like low end rb1s through like mid to low rb3s like wherever you know round six usually ends which usually ends up being somewhere in the rb3 range I think that is is how the dead zone should be defined with the rise of the Uber back rather than, you know, the third round ADP or whatever. I think it should be defined as the lack of upside. 
because what we're look like when I dug into the the article I did on you know legendary upside, the big thing was there's actually a significantly higher bust rate, and by bust rate I define that as having a win rate of less than five percent in these PPR best ball leagues. Forty percent of running backs were busting in rounds one and two, going back through 2015. 19% were busting from three to six with those sub 5% win rates. Now, because I used a win rate that, you know, yeah, to have that low of a win rate, you're generally going to have a high ADP. It's like you're taking on significantly more risk by taking the running back in rounds one through two. The reason that it's worth doing to some extent is because you can also hit the legendary guys and those aren't available. The Christian McCaffrey was not drafted in 2019 in the fourth round, you know, even in 2018, he was like in the second round. So you're getting these guys who can actually change your season, be one of the few guys that you really, really did need to own that year. What happens, I think, around where you're saying, Jack, you know, whether it's RB7 or wherever, we're now moving into a range of guys who we can project good roles for, but don't really have upside to change your season. Like, Nick Chubb is probably a good example of that, where he's a good player. We know he's going to get his work. You know, I like Nick Chubb. I think he's a great rusher, but he needs an injury to really have a chance to have like even a Dalvin Cook style role. And even then, maybe he doesn't get it because he's not really ever been used in that receiving part of the game the way Cook has. So you just don't have the upside. Like a Najee Harris is someone that I understand why people find him appealing because he's going to get a ton of work. The Steelers clearly want to run a more and have that be more of their identity, but the offensive line is a disaster. We're not particularly excited about the offense. And so the efficiency, very unlikely to be there for him. How does he turn into, you know, a 25 point per game guy? So it's like Najee Harris is part of the dead zone for me, no matter where he goes, because <laughs> yeah. how you, you don't get the upside with him. That's a really interesting point because as Jack was talking uh, a little bit ago about how the running backs are all shifting down. And so you have to make this decision whether the dead zone running backs are now palatable enough and, and, and correctly priced, or whether you want to actually just wait for those a little bit later running backs that have been better anyways, who are going further down. As he was making that point, I was thinking sort of similar to what you were saying just now, which is, I don't think the market really identifies running backs well at all. And and, and you're driving home that point about, about upside that, if everyone is shifting down, we're not solving part of the issue with the dead zone, which part of the issue with the dead zone is we don't understand running back upside or we don't value it enough. We value guaranteed touches more than upside, right? Uh, as a broadly, not we independently in, in this conversation, but broadly as a community. And so you have guys like Mike Davis every single year are going to go in that range because they project the most. When I wrote the original article, I was referencing Alex Collins in 2018, who was a top hundred pick because he looked like the, the main lead back for the Ravens that year because he had closed the year before as the as the lead back and had a good year the year before. We do this every offseason. I mean, it's guys who got hot the year before. Mike Davis had the best uh, production of his entire career last year, gets signed to a new contract. He's on a new roster, not a lot of competition. Okay, Mike Davis has to go by a certain point in the draft. Mm-hmm. The reality is, like, Mike Davis doesn't profile as a guy who's going to hit a real ceiling in this new offense any better than – Daryl Henderson did just before Cam Akers got hurt. And that's the point about the Cam or Akers AJ injury. Or A.J. Dillon or a lot of other guys. The, the point about the Cam Akers injury, I wouldn't – I would really emphasize to tell people to kind of shy away from the actual, like, bust rate or injury rate of running backs because any player in any position could have tore their Achilles working out in the offseason. I don't think that had anything to do with him playing running back necessarily. But the change that happens in ADP for a guy like Henderson doesn't happen when that happens at other positions, right? Like – when Jordy, Jordy Nelson is the first big wide receiver injury I, I can think of that happened in the preseason a couple of years back for the Packers. When that happened, no other Packers receiver jumped from the 12th round to the fourth round. That's not how it happens in any yeah. other position. It's it's very independent to the or specific to the running back position. So I don't think we're valuing the way that upside can manifest at running back well. And the fact of the matter is, like guys that we just can't see the role for early in the season still have that upside in those double-digit rounds. It, just imagine if T. Higgins decides to sit out the season, Auden Tate gets drafted. He doesn't. Yeah. He doesn't become a thing. I mean, it's it's just an entirely different, yeah, dynamic. Yep, because there's one running back in most form uh, formations as opposed to you know multi wide receivers, and and so everyone moves up one rung, kind of at yeah. wide receiver. Well, to the point of upside, a couple of guys I did want to talk about are 
Javante Williams and Travis Etienne and get your guys' thoughts on them. Ben, I know you and Sean have talked about them on Stealing Bananas as being like, and they're just sort of obvious. Like if you do this for a while, it's like who's going to end up on the zero running back list? It's like they're, they're just very clearly Javante Williams and Travis Etienne. And the reason it's clearly is because they profile as having upside in terms of their prospect profile. Both of them do certain things extremely well. They have very high draft capital. And then I think another macro point is that when you have rookies or second year players, we just know less about them. And that's upside. Like variance is both downside and upside. And if the goal of drafting a running back in this range is upside, you would actually prefer to know less, not more. Yep. So where are you, uh, Jack, where are you guys, where are you at on, on Williams and ETN? Are you, are you taking them right now? Yeah, I'm, I'm more of an ETN fan because I think he was a better prospect. Javante's comps on Rotoviz are not super impressive, plus the offense, um, as long as, you know, Locke or Teddy's their quarterback, might not be that great. But I, I think the point about just firing shots on guys who we don't know much about is a good one because, like, I think, and, and Gretch on Stealing Bananas has talked, and Gretch and Sean have talked about projections a lot and i think one way where you could attack projections is like with etn's adp right now is last i checked it's rb24 i looked at a few projections and they had him at rb25 or so 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 the projection indicates his adp is fair but like he's a rookie we don't know how much james robinson is going to be involved we don't know if they're going to use him as like a gadget player if they're going to use him as an actual running back like we we literally know nothing about travis etn right now yeah, projections, his median outcome appears to be like on par with his ADP. So because he has such a massive range of outcomes, just because we know nothing about him, but his median still indicates his ADP is fair. I think that is the type of guy where you want to be taking chances on because there's so much uncertainty, which lends itself to a wider range of outcomes, which is pretty much what upside is. So yeah, just those, those uncertain guys where the median outcome according to projections indicates ADP is fair. Those guys seem like pretty intriguing bets to me. When I look at like historically, the way that I think about that, what Jack's saying is like in the uncertainty, like it really literally is uncertainty. Like we don't know who the player is. So when I did the original dead zone thing and looked at, at ceilings, the, the, I mentioned there's like seven guys in that dead zone that actually hit. I think like five of them were rookies or second year players. It was Doug Martin early in his career. We didn't know who Doug Martin was. It turned out that Doug Martin showed a legit ceiling and he's not the best example because he wasn't like a long-term good player. But the other good examples are LaShawn McCoy in his age 22 season was just inside the third round. Ray Rice in his age 22 season was a sixth, early sixth round pick. Kareem Hunt, that, that was a Spencer Ware injury situation. So his ADP was probably an aggregation of a couple different spots that he was sitting. Arian Foster, his first breakout year was in this fifth, sixth range. The point is, those are all players that ultimately showed that they were really good at the NFL level. And then market just didn't actually understand how good this player was because we hadn't seen him at the NFL level yet. But ultimately, were multi-season future first-round picks, right? The Mike Davis types, like for him to suddenly be a future first-round pick next year, that's not going to happen. There's almost no no way that can happen. And it's funny when you guys are talking about how the market started to like create the dead zone, they pushed up some of the fourth and fifth round running backs that have guaranteed touches. These Chris Carson types. Chris Carson is not a top five running back. We've seen him for several years. He's been very workload dependent. And with that workload, he's not been able to return a top five or maybe even top 10 season that I that I can maybe is low end top 10. I don't know. That type of guy gets pushed up into like the third round. So they're no longer a dead zone back. And ETN and Williams started falling. So people yeah. were still, even as they're creating this dead zone gap, they're valuing the wrong thing. They're valuing what they think is guaranteed touches in projections, as opposed to what you, if you actually want to look at league, like league winners in the dead zone, you should be valuing this uncertainty that we were just talking about where the market, the only reason they might be going there essentially is the market doesn't yet know that they're going to be a future multi-year first round pick. Right. And so they're going in the fifth round now. I mean, Melvin Gordon was one of these guys several years ago after his rookie year, before these guys broke out, they were valued basically incorrectly by the market. I think we can pretty much say that Mike Davis is valued correctly. Like he doesn't have much ceiling. So don't ever draft that guy. That's a veteran that we've seen stuff from draft the guy that might be the next future first round pick. Right. This is, this takes me to why 
I would prefer DeAndre Swift over Najee Harris straight up because I think DeAndre Swift might be a future first round fantasy pick. And I think the Lions aren't so bad that he couldn't do it this year. Like, I would much rather have DeAndre Swift in Dynasty. Ben, you guys talked about, like, why why couldn't it be this year? That concept of if you like this guy in Dynasty, why are you ruling out this upcoming season is when he might he might actually pop. Swift showed really well as a receiver. He showed explosiveness. He showed the ability to be used around the goal line. We're now worried about Jamal Williams. But, I mean, Jamal Williams is not a guy who's – he's good, but he's not great. If DeAndre Swift is awesome, if he's to the level of a top five 2022 redraft pick Jamal Williams is not going to be a concern and this offense feels to me like it could be you know Panthers level and support a ton of volume for the running back so that's like there's uncertainty with Swift saying you would rather have him over Najee Harris is likely going to make me look silly because Najee Harris is going to outscore Swift in most simulations of this season but there are very few simulations of the season where Najee Harris ends up as a true league winner. There's somewhere he has like a you know 10% win rate or you're glad you took him, but he's not crushing. And I think there are scenarios where DeAndre Swift absolutely crushes. There's not maybe a ton of them, but, they're, but they exist. And so he would probably be the other guy other than the two rookies in the dead zone. I completely agree that Williams and ETN are quite interesting, especially because they've been falling into like the late sixth on underdog recently, which I think... Uh, makes them very appealing but swift is the other guy in the kind of the true dead zone falling past the middle of the third round often that i think is intriguing justin and so good thousands of summer deals at your nordstrom rack store save up to 60 percent on new arrivals from vince rag and bone adidas joe's mark jacobs and more great brands great prices every day at nordstrom rack but hurry for first dibs. Get your summer favorites up to 60% off at Nordstrom Rack today. Great brands, great prices. That's why you rack. The longest field goal ever attempted is 76 yards. The longest field goal ever missed? Also 76 yards. Why bring this up? Because knowing your limits matters, both when you're kicking a field goal and when you gamble. Betting more than you're comfortable with is like trying a 70-yard field goal. It probably won't go well. So set a limit when you gamble and stick to it. Want more helpful tips like this? Go to KeepItFunOhio.com for games, quizzes, and lots of ways to keep your gambling from getting out of hand. Have you ever spotted McDonald's hot, crispy fries right as they're being scooped into the carton? And time just stands still. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Are you guys on him at all? Jack, are you drafting him at all? I like Swift now that he's falling. But with with Najee in particular, doesn't he also have some talent uncertainty as, as a rookie? Like, he could he, – he was a good pass catcher in college, and it looks like they're just going to – I'm not pro Najee or anything. I just think that he has similar uncertainty from maybe a talent perspective because the market is thinking we haven't seen him before. Plus, you can pencil him in for a massive workload. He, he was a good pass catcher in college. And because we've never seen it, maybe there is some uncertainty there. That's a good point. I think what I would say with Najee is how does he get efficiency? Because he's not a big play guy. He had very, very few big plays in college. I believe less than 25 runs of 20-plus of yards. And the offensive line is a disaster. So and the and we don't expect the passing offense to be like a, a world-beating passing offense. It might be capable. So that's the part for me where it's like it's hard for me to see him becoming that guy this season. Like I think he could maybe end up being like Le'Veon Bell, and you know, and his upside as a player. But Le'Veon Bell wasn't efficient at all as a rookie, and I think he's also going to struggle to really show that this year. What, ben, where are you at on my my hot take on? I, no, I think it's a good point. I see both of your points. I think Jack makes a good point that, you know, I, I'm also not pro Najee necessarily because of the lack of explosive plays that you referenced, even though he also had, like, I think the best 
run blocking in the class or, or, you know, some really good run blocking metrics where he had the highest average yards gained before first touch or whatever. And then even though he's getting past the first, the first line because of great run blocking, he's still not breaking off a lot of 20 yard runs. That doesn't make a lot of sense, but you know, he went the first round and, and the uncertainty is a huge element here. Like we, we don't know, like I don't, yeah, I don't feel true. like I'm good enough at evaluating running back talent. And the receiving work is a huge part of this too. Like a big reason for the swift thing is like, yeah, he could profile as a guy who gets the right types of touches. He could, they don't have anyone to throw to. This could be a team that literally just throws their running backs and tight ends and throws the Hawkinson and Swift and hardly throws to their receivers. I, I just did the projections pod with, with Mike Leone that I've been doing recently. And I, we just recorded the one today. And I talked about how in my projections, I have the wide receivers for this team under 50% of their overall targets, which is a really low amount for a projection, but kind of makes sense how that offense could operate. So that's part of the Swift upside. But then you can kind of see that with Harris too. Like he could have, a really significant receiving role. So I don't, I don't, I, I've struggled with Harris a ton. I, I, I don't really know how to value him, but I do agree with Jack that like, there's enough uncertainty that we have to be like willing to be wrong, basically that, that he's not going to be super efficient. I would not consider myself pro nausea or anything. Um, and I, I do like Swift. I would consider myself like pro Swift relative to where he's going positionally. I'd say again, it's the whole like, I'd rather yeah, the funny take thing is I'm not really there. drafting either of these guys. <laughs> yeah. 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 Right. Like I'm taking wide receivers over Swift, but if it's kind of the same point where if Najee can eventually become Le'Veon Bell, like why can't he do it this year? Yeah. 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 yeah that's true. I think the, uh, another thing I wanted to mention when we we're talking earlier about where the dead zone starts. And I think sort of the reason we're talking about this is we're trying to have a discussion about whether these guys actually have a lead upside in the second and third round and who they might be, even though we tend to target receivers. We're, I think probably all of us are a little bit concerned that we're going to miss somebody who is an absolute smash at the running back position. We know that upside exists. And one of the things I wanted to talk about, and the reason I was asking Jack about that, that I think is interesting. I have this hypothesis. You guys are going to, I, w- I want to hear what you guys think about it, that basically over the last couple of years, ADP has been a, more efficient in this way at the very top from like RB1 to RB6 compared to like, say, RB7 to RB12, but that it's not always that efficient and that typically the real range of potential ceiling comes from like RB1 to RB10 or RB15. And the reason I would say that is I did that 10-year study. And if you go back a little further, there are a lot of examples of guys going in RB8, RB9, RB12 that had pretty monster seasons. Chris Johnson's massive 2009, he was RB8. DeMarco Murray's huge 2014, he was RB8. Todd Gurley's massive 2017, which was just absolutely, you had to have, he was RB9. He was going like at the end of the second round. That was not that long ago. Adrian Peterson's 2012, I think was when he was coming off his ACL, he was RB9. And Le'Veon Bell's second year, to your point, after he had the down first year, he was RB12. That was 2014. Several really strong, all those were uh, either... 300 point PPR seasons are they're at least 285 PPR points, massive full season, pretty legit ceiling outcomes that all came sort of outside that RB one to six range still before the RB 15 range. The only reason I bring that up so much is the hypothesis that we've been efficient lately, but also this year it's interesting because there's a lot of question marks for guys like Kamara, Zeke, Derek Henry, you know, his question mark is just that even though he ran for 2000 yards last year, he couldn't break 21 points per game. I don't know that we can get more out of him from a ceiling perspective. There's several guys that are going high that have a few more question marks this year. And I'm wondering, and, and Sean, and I talked about this a little bit in a recent uh, podcast, if this is the year where, you know, a DeAndre Swift or a Clyde Edwards Zillair, we talked about, a, you know, I, Pat, I know you and I really like Gibson. I don't know where you stand on him, Jack, but Antonio Gibson, one of these guys becomes that player from the RB eight to RB 12 range, you know, makes, makes the leap. Is that possible? You know, how likely do we think that is? What, Like, Jack, I guess I want to pose it to you because you said the RB1 to RB6 thing, you're kind of looking at just the last three or four years, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Do you think that might be the case that we just got a lucky little stretch here where the, the top six were really good and some of that older data about like RB8, RB10? Or do you think we've really gotten that much more efficient? Because that was another possible answer. I think it's kind of like a combination of two things. So first, I think for the most part over the last few years, we've had like a four or five player first tier, right? Like last year it was CMC, Dalvin, Saquon, Zeke Kamara, I think. And I think we don't have that so much this year because I agree with you that RB3 through 15 is a lot flatter than normal. But I also think RB1 and 2 might be stronger than normal. And, And over the past few years, 
it hasn't been like all top six running backs are smashing. It's been McCaffrey smashing. It's been Dalvin Kamara smashing. It's been like, like Saquon and CMC got hurt last year and missed like the whole year pretty much. And it was literally just that Dalvin and Kamara just destroyed. Right. So, the one through six thing is is a little misleading. It's not like there are six guys who had good years. Right. So yeah. That's the range where you find the two guys who crush or the yeah, one. Yeah. And and I don't know. I've I've kind of felt this way the whole offseason. And it, it it's like not actionable at all. But I think like McC- the like McCaffrey advantage is still underrated. Like I th- like he averaged thirty points a game last year. He averaged twenty nine in twenty nineteen. It's almost like you either get CMC or you get Dalvin or like you kind of miss on the actually elite guys because Sean, you, you meant, you just mentioned it with Derrick Henry. Um, and then Sean had a good article recently about Jonathan Taylor. He mentioned Henry and Chubb in it too. Like that those types of guys need the receiving to get there. And Jonathan Taylor, Sean wrote could get there because there is precedent for guys like Zeke and Melvin Gordon getting a much larger receiving role in year two. But for someone like Henry, he had, 2,000 yards, 17 touchdowns last year, um, like 125 yards and more than a touchdown average every game. And he still averaged, I think, 20.9 points per game. Like, as long as McCaffrey and Dalvin are getting multifaceted rushing and receiving and then scoring a bunch of touchdowns, I kind of don't think, like, anyone else can compete this year. So I, I kind of feel like there's, like, a, it's like RB1 and 2. So, okay. So then what do we do? I, I, I want to make a couple of points on the, on the rookie thing real quick, because I honestly think we might be tricking ourselves a little. I brought those guys up as like exceptions to the dead zone. Cause I do think they're interesting, but we might be tricking ourselves a little bit, even with Javante Williams and Travis Etienne, because last year, Jonathan Taylor had a 10.2% win rate. That's mm-hmm. it's good. I like that, but he just cried. Like you, he should have, that should have been higher. You would, you would think, but he was actually fairly expensive and then DeAndre Swift had an 8.9% win rate. So he basically pays you back what you what you spent on him, but he didn't really add much. So those guys, I think the ceiling is is actually higher for what you need for them than you might think, unless they truly do start falling more into like the seventh round. I think CEH is probably the the one guy in this whole range. Like he he creeps sometimes into that like two, three turn. He does, I think, have like pretty massive upside. He could put it together and and have like the Ceh could be the one hundred two next year, right? I mean, that's that's not crazy to think. He's on the no, Chiefs. He was a one hundred six last year, right? I mean, yeah. And the situation has probably only gotten better. Yeah. So he's probably, I think, him. He's an exception. Gibson's an exception for me. But if you just take the point that Jack made, that it might really be a two top running back season. What do you do at 103? What's Jack? What's the pivot? That's the question, I think, and and I think underdog makes it a lot more difficult of a question because half PPR versus full PPR. I think it's a great with, with how running back ADP is turning. I think it is a great zero RB year, but it takes a big hit in terms of viability when you move from full PPR to half PPR. So what I've what I've personally been doing is I've just been following. ADP because at the top of drafts, that's pretty much what I do just so I don't end up overexposed to, to someone going, you know, in the top 10 and then, you know, they get hurt and my season is is crushed, especially since ADP is most efficient at the top of the draft. So I kind of just trust it in the first round. But in PPR, I think like taking Tyreek or Kelsey at 103 might not be that bad. I think it yeah. might be good because you're good. Yeah. you're looking at like, <laughs> all the win <laughs> all the win rate stuff that I was using you know, like to to talk about how we need legendary upside. That's from best ball leagues, mm-hmm. but there's caveats to best ball because you can construct really smart best ball. You can structurally draft so that you're getting the most out of your early running back picks, right? So I think you can probably boost win rates if you. Like, let's say you take a Derrick Henry, who I, I think is probably a trap this year because in his best-case scenarios, he pays you back plus a little bit. In his worst-case scenarios, he loses you the league. There are very – I don't think there's any scenarios where he has the season named after him. Like, he's just not that type of guy. He doesn't catch enough passes. So 
if you end up taking like Derrick Henry in best ball and then you don't take a running back for a very long time, at least you're using his score every week and you've structurally made a sound investment in Henry compared to, you know, someone who's going to take, you know, four running backs up top and then take a couple running back flyers and stuff. Right. But in managed leagues, you are also now competing with guys who can pick up guys off the waiver wire. Like everyone has access to additional running back points. And so the advantage of having Henry in the first place is diminished. The advantage of having an early wide receiver that you just plug into your starting lineup and never have to worry about is increased because the best ball scoring isn't a factor. So in managed leagues, like all of this stuff shifts more to the wide receivers and away from the running backs. Ben, I know you've talked about Stefan Diggs very high yep. in drafts. Tyree Kill, I think, is also very interesting. Travis Kelsey, I think, a little less interesting because of the way that Kittle's falling and Waller's falling. Like, I don't see the same gap between Kelsey and the other two elite tight ends as the market does. But on his own, I think Kelsey is interesting as well outside of that market dynamic. But it's contrarian, but I think it might be ultimately like the most efficient way to draft would just be to take Hill or Diggs 103. Yeah, and I think it's interesting broadly to step back and, and see what we're saying is that essentially the 103 is like the worst spot to draft this year because it's incredibly flat at that point. It, you're not gaining an advantage over someone drafting 109, basically, because a lot of these guys you could also take at 109. And to Jack's point, the 101 and the 102 do profile as having this massive advantage that almost no one else can reach. I mean, that's that is a very good point. When he was talking about Christian McCaffrey's PPR points per game, being so untouchable like I, i've been saying the same thing and i I've, I've put it in auction terms like he's legitimately worth like 40 percent or 50 percent of your budget this year and i've never said that about really any back i mean i the one year i made that mistake was david johnson after 2016 i i was like this dude's worth 70 percent you know <laughs> not 70 percent like 70 bucks in a 200 budget he's worth 35 percent. i think mccaffrey's worth even more than that he's worth 40 percent. you know uh, he might play more than one game yeah, he might play more than one game like David Johnson did not that year. Uh, I did a ton of auctions that year just to buy a ton yeah. of David Johnson. It worked oh, really, really well. It worked so well. No, but so 103, it, it becomes really flat. The one guy we haven't said yet that I think actually I think is the, the correct answer for the 103 now is Devontae Adams because Aaron Rodgers is back or he tweeted that he's, you know, one more. I think we all pretty much expect that that's meant what has been trending for the last few weeks. Soon as he's back, if you actually do a Devontae Adams projection with Aaron Rodgers in there, he's going to come out as a wide receiver one. I just did one, and he did for me, and I'm very aggressive on digs. I think Adams is the really logical one. You can bank on a ton of touchdowns the way they use him in the in the in inside the 10. They throw these little quick hitters to him. I mean, Rodgers throws to him constantly. They're on the same page. He's going to score double-digit touchdowns. He's going to get a massive target share. He should probably be the wide receiver one now that we have certain a little more certainty on Rodgers. And that probably means he should go 103. But the thing is, you don't have to draft him there. So it just sucks to have the 103 more or less is the is the answer. I would rather be at 110 and I could, you know, take Adam to there. Yeah, so so then a so kicking it back to running backs for a minute. So if we think that there is this two RB tier of McCaffrey and Cook, so for all other running backs, like in rounds two through, I mean, to some extent you have to, change what upside means like you can't hold you know a mid-round guy to the same like ceiling outcome as you do someone going earlier but like are we asking ourselves like does this guy have like dalvin cook in his range of outcomes because i think that would lead you to like literally never draft a running back which i have never done <laughs> the issue with that though and this is another point that i brought up with sean recently is mccaffrey could get hurt again and cook could get hurt again and if if yeah. they do you can have another season where only having 22 points per game or whatever ends up being good enough for RB1, massive win rates, all that stuff. I mean, there's still value yeah. in having the highest scoring running back if if he's the highest scoring running back. And I also think it's a little bit like elite tight end. Like, you know, we think Kelsey, Kill, and Waller are all going to be great, but we're still willing to take other tight ends with pretty decent capital, even if we don't think they can be as good as those guys, because having that advantage over everyone else in your league is still worth something right having that positional advantage over the other tight ends if, if hawkinson is a really strong tight end four that's still going to be good the point is just like yeah you're, you're probably not going to get anywhere near mccaffrey or cook's upside but i will say when i was saying that sort of hypothesis earlier i think this is going to be a year where somebody's going to come out of the second or third round and have 23 points per game or something whether that's you know a lot of the guys we've talked about earlier whether that's you know ceh or 
even Najee Harris or, or whoever, Antonio Gibson. I think there's a lot of a lot of good candidates for that, and it's so flat. That would be my answer. I really hope it's right? not Najee Harris, Ben. Yeah. <laughs> it's going to be bad for me. <laughs> That's my answer to that hypothesis question that I that I kind of posed earlier. Is like I think this is a year where a second-round running back or a third-round running back is going to break the more recent trends where we haven't seen real upside from those those ranges, and it's only been the top five. Yeah, I, yeah. this is this is the flattest RB three to fifteen year I can I can remember as long as I've been playing or as long as I've been paying attention. So, well, Jack, yeah. you you talked about like how we should think about when to actually draft a running back. In your article, you pointed out that you know wide receiver scoring is falling off as we move as we move later into the draft. And so, if you're looking to me, it's like the time to take running backs is when there's no upside left at the highest scoring position which is wide receiver highest scoring position that you have to, that you can start in the flex. And once that's gone, then you can start drafting the low scoring position, which is running back. I mean, that's really the fundamental issue here is that running back is a low scoring position. It is kind of like tight end where there's a few guys who score a lot of points and everyone else scores a little bit of points and a tight end. We're sort of chasing like, Hey, maybe TJ Hawkinson will be one of the few guys who scores a lot of points and he'll, he'll be, you know, a second round pick next year. That's sort of your bet. But more often than not, those guys don't tend to pan out because it's so rare to find the elite tight ends. And that's why the same elite tight ends get drafted year after year after year because it's a pretty rare profile. And I think that Uber back profile is is pretty similar. Like McCaffrey is the 101 after a, a year lost to injury without any question because he has that profile without a doubt. And it's such a rare profile. And so I think it's totally acceptable to essentially punt running back past the rounds where there is no or the wide receiver upside starts to get a little shaky and then you're you're drafting for upside again because now what you need from those running backs like a guy from aj Dillon, what upside means for aj Dillon is not what upside means for derrick henry even though they have somewhat similar profiles because the cost is just so much low and the opportunity cost at wide receiver is so much lower yeah and i think that's actually a really good way to think about it is think about running backs as more similar almost to tight ends than wide receiver um except you know there's more slightly more good running backs so there's like you know because you have to start two and then like we said the second round might be stronger than past years but after that like it is like you know there is no you you should treat it like if you don't get those guys then you wait yeah all right i think we'll leave it there ben what, what do you got going on you got a bunch going on yeah, going to finish up that projection spot with Leone. Have the Stealing Bananas pod with Sean Siegel that everyone should check out. Go rate, review, what, what like like it, share it, tweet it, <laughs> listen to it, it, fleet it. I don't know. BenGretsch.substack.com is my uh, newsletter. It's five bucks a month. Come join me. I'll I'll send you emails. Yeah, and uh, follow Ben on Twitter at Yards Per Gretch. He's also on Ship Chasing with me and Pete Overzet. Pete Overzet's taking the week off, but uh, we'll still still keep keep the show going without. Him. <laughs> uh, Jack, what what do you got going on? Uh, just keeping writing for NBC ETR. Uh, follow me on Twitter at Jack Miller zero two. Yeah, that's all I got in terms of self plugging. All right, what's the O two for? So I mean, Jack Miller. Like, it's tough to find Twitter usernames, right? Like, I've I've actually gotten so many DMs. Like, are you Jay Miller on Underdog? And I'm like, no. There's just like so many. Jack Miller type names, and then I was born in two thousand one. Oh my god! Um, I probably, oh, probably, should, probably shouldn't say that, but but oh I was I was, I was fourteen. I, I that made me feel. Old. <laughs> I was I was in my third year playing fantasy football when you were born. <laughs> uh, so I just I just, moved, I just run up a number. All right, All right well. <laughs> the year you turned one. It's very significant. Yeah. Yeah. I need to reevaluate some things. Please rate and review the podcast <laughs> on iTunes. Uh, subscribe on YouTube. Uh, fleet about it. Let let people know about the show. <laughs> and uh, we will see you next time. The longest field goal ever attempted is 76 yards. The longest field goal ever missed? Also 76 yards. Why bring this up? Because knowing your limits matters, both when you're kicking a field goal and when you gamble. Betting more than you're comfortable with is like trying a 70-yard field goal. It probably won't go well. So set a limit when you gamble and stick to it. Want more helpful tips like this? Go to KeepItFunOhio.com for games, quizzes, and lots of ways to keep your gambling from getting out of hand. 
need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.